people. He captured something in the writing. He captured a flavor. He brought us to some kind of um, experience to share with him. Uh, he let us in. Part of the spirit of the book and part of the spirit of this podcast is to be, you know, neutral and, um, you know, not engaging in just glorification or hero worship, but just to be more scholarly about the realism of who these people are. You know, all of us are initially, you know, flawed and unfinished and works in progress. And that's true for everyone who's ever showed up on this planet, in my view. So Lenin is no exception. He, he wasn't, you know, in any sense, quote, some kind of God. He was very flawed and very human. And the, the maturation of his chart is basically from war to peace. He's got karma around conflict and violence and possibly war, which played out in his biography. Played out in his biography. Really, the, the work of the Beatles is a transmutation of emotional issues into creative expression, into something that can be enjoyed by many. So turning a painful issue, grief and loss, but also in this example, something more belligerent, taking ownership for that and transmuting that into joy and good cheer and entertainment and stuff that we can sing along to and have fun to, that is the spiritual work of the Beatles. to the spiritual dimension of the Beatles. All right. Welcome back to the Spiritual Dimension of the Beatles podcast. Eric, this is a special episode that we're doing tonight. Yes, it is. Uh, John Lennon will be 80 years old. Yeah. And he died at 40. So this is kind of like he's been dead as long as he was alive. So this is a big deal. And I'm, I'm seeing a lot of stuff. I, I'm seeing like Elton John tributes, Sean and Julian getting together and, you know, a lot of stuff. It, it's a big deal. A lot of people are, are making about are, his 80th birthday. As they should. So what are we going to do tonight, Eric? Well, let's talk about, you know, some things about his, his chart I'll mention um, and what I see as really what his spiritual work was. Um, but how about, you know, kind of celebrating him a bit? Yeah. You know? to, to me, um, his cultural uh, contribution was just enormous. And I want to talk about various ways we can see that. And yeah, I kind of want to talk about some of his great songs for a few minutes to honor him. And um, would you start by telling me what he personally means to you? Well, <laughs> he 
He means a lot to me. Um, you know, as I mentioned, I, I was a Beatles fan from a very young age. And, um, and it was John's, you know, songs that really kind of brought me in uh, and initially. And there's a magic that I experienced with some of his songs. And he just kind of captivated me. And, um, and then learning about his activism, learning about his flaws and his weaknesses and how he addressed that and how he grew is inspiring to me. And also the way he was a catalyst for individuation. Um, that's one thing to mention. You know, John was an Aquarius moon. He had a strong need to be an individualist. And that can manifest at times of being rebellious. It can manifest this time as being kind of ornery and difficult, <laughs> mm -hmm. pushing the envelope and doing yeah. things that are outrageous. Hence, you know, you might uh, see the naked album cover of Two yeah. Virgins as one of those examples. That's why I love him. He, he put himself out there. He challenged us and he built up the myth of the Beatles. And then he probably more than anyone tore it down. I don't believe in Beatles. Yeah. And I love that he tore it down because he was all about authenticity. And, um, you know, for that naked album cover, you know, kind of the way that I see his statement there is almost like if I can put words in the, into his mouth or just my kind of impression of what he was saying was, you know, a couple years ago with Beatlemania, you wanted to tear off my clothes. Well, here I am. <laughs> yeah. My clothes are torn off. And let's get to the reality here. This isn't glamorous. This isn't something, you know, that we need to dress up. I'm real and I'm vulnerable mm -hmm. and we don't need to create silly stories about who I am anymore. What, ha you know, like what happened to the part that the, the playful, nonsensical you know that that like the lewis carroll inspired he loved putting these these weird words and punning and just like oh, God, yes. absurdist uh, th that didn't change now as he got, got older stronger. Did, it? did it oh sure i think that you know he, that's, that's um, one of my favorite things about him is just like he'll, he'll have these little expressions like um Ladies and gentle phones. As i was only saying the other day we had a vague idea but very vague also very <laughs> Just a bit of laughter, ladies and gentle phones. You know, something like that. You know, that, it was that... really at the peak of the arc to build on the, the prior discussion. In 66, I think in Revolver was the first time that he became a lot more uh, liberated with his uh, language, with his word use. And then it only strengthened. And then, you know, in 67, you get I'm the Walrus, which is just, yeah. you know... Um, the word use on there is just uh, intentionally, um, you know, multi-layered and, and introducing some confusion. And then on the White Album, his, his language use on the White Album is so phenomenally um, individualistic. And, you know, the worm he licked my bone and lines yeah. like that. I mean, he just stuff that came out of him that was just so unique. Yeah. And then come together with all of the... Um, you know, language use of, 
you know, juju eyeball and, and all this kind of weird stuff. Yeah. You know, it's, it just had a knack with language that I really appreciate. Um, quite well, when bit. I was in high school, I read uh, what, what's the title of his poetry book and, and maybe Spangard he has in two. The works. There's, but, but there's in his own writ in his own right. Yeah. In, in his own right. Um, I just loved, I, I loved the absurdity of all of those word images that he was painting. Well, John, I believe you've written a book and this book's called John Lennon in his own right, folks. John Lennon in his own right, W-R-I-T, you see, it's a laugh. It's a laugh a minute with John Lennon. Some of you might uh, find it a bit difficult to understand because, you see, it's in a sort of funny lingo. Well, we get it, you see, it's, it's full of laughs. And uh, I, I don't really know how you could describe it, but... I've never read anything like it. You know, the stories are so funny. I... Ha, ha! Many little drawings which will make you laugh. We also have the wrestling dog. Once upon a time, in a far-off distant land, far across the sea, miles away from anyway, over the hills as the crow bark. <coughs> Thirty-nine people lived miles away from anywhere on a little island on a distant land. When harvest time came along, all the people celebrated with a mighty feast and dancing and that. It was Perry's. So Perry was the loud mayor. Job to provide. At Perry's great pleasure, I might add. A new and exciting. And usually it was. Thrill and spectacular performer. Sometimes a dwarf was used. This year, Perry had surpassed himself by getting a wrestling dog. <laughs> but who would fight this wondrous beast? I wouldn't for a kickoff. Wouldn't get me fighting it, Dudley. Uh, Mr. John Lennon. Mr. John Lennon will be back with the answers later on in the program. Well, absurdity uh, is part of the Aquarius archetype. Yeah. Uh, it goes with the planet Uranus. It's unconventional. It is different perspectives. It's um, Maybe that's why I like it so much, Eric, with yeah, well, Aquarius yeah, sun. <laughs> that's right. Glenn's an Aquarius sun. So, yeah, he had that. And then his Mercury, which is about communication, uh, was in the sign of Scorpio, which can be subversive. And, um, and he can put in other kind of levels and dimensions. And he did that intentionally, um, you know, with some of those things I was mentioning with I'm the Walrus and stuff on the White Album. He was intentionally, you know, writing things to uh, create, um, you know, uncertainty and multiple, you know, possibilities. Or well, like in Glass Onion where he says, here's another yeah. clue for you all. Well, here's another clue for you all. walrus was paul <laughs> right exactly stuff like that you know he was he he always you know got us to think and question because you know that's what he was about of questioning society questioning the mythology of the beatles or or questioning the vietnam war or politics or politicians or what have you you know this is really what i admire about him is he pushed the envelope. Um, he wasn't afraid um, to, to do that. And so he has personally been an inspiration to me because I've at times been inhibited or second guessing. And when I see what Lennon did, I'm like, well, you know, I can be a little bit more free too. Yeah. So, so John Winston Lennon, and then he had the Winston dropped and officially changed to Ono. So I decided I was going to pick up the Winston. So I, I like a, a friend of mine in college, we would play guitar together and sing. And we like recorded a bunch of music together. We called ourselves Winston. 
hmm. in in the in his honor. And then many years later, I got a dog and uh, named my dog Winston. Huh. So, so the, the little subtle uh, John well, Lennon influence for Winston because it had a Churchill kind of connotation. Sure, and, you know he was born in 1940 in England, and yeah, and so he didn't really care for that too much. No, he told me he told me it was okay. I could have it. <laughs> he didn't. He didn't have any problem with me taking it at all. Right. Just a bit of laughter, ladies and gentlemen. So, um, let's talk about his cultural contribution. All right. Um, this is where I really see Lennon most brightly um you know the astrology in his chart that would correlate with this is he was a libra sun which does have to do with culture it has to do with trends his style and aesthetics um but here's something about his libra sun um the tightest aspect in john's entire chart was pluto in leo making what's called a quintile to the sun. And what this means is that um, the quintile is oftentimes secondary or marginalized. Many consider it a minor aspect. And to be honest, it's, it's not the central thing in my practice either, but I, I look at it when it's going to pop up. And it does pop up. And what they say about the quintile is that it's the aspect of potential genius. Um, so the tightest aspect, pretty much exact in his chart, is Pluto in Leo. Pluto, a transformation. Leo, through entertainment and performance, in a brilliant way, into culture. Libra, the transformation, Pluto, of culture through entertainment. That's what he had. That was his awakened gift and in my studies of the beatles both reading um a lot of literature and and also you know really understanding the impact of his works in the world i think that john had the biggest influence on culture and the thing that is so amazing about it is that it takes so many different forms as he himself matured. So at the beginning, you know, in Hamburg and the early Beatles, here they are, you know, wearing leather jackets, smoking cigarettes, you know, greasy hair, gruff, young, you know, musicians. I call them the musical gunslingers at this point. Like the guitar is almost like, you know, a weapon. And they're going to travel around and they're going to brandish their musical weapons. And they kind of embody that romantic kind of spirit of the young musician, you know, with their purity for rock and their look and their music. And then Twist and Shout comes out of that. And Twist and Shout, albeit a cover song, out of most of their early song catalog that one had a lot of entrance into the collective consciousness so many movies you know feature that song so many parties you know it's it's almost this iconic song of the young 19 year old like frat boy you know kind of letting it loose and yelling and and getting all feverish about about music and dancing. I mean, it, it's so emblematic of that time in 1963. 
of of passion for youthful vigor around music you know and the way he sang that song i just listened to it earlier today and his vocal performance on twist and shout is one of my absolute favorite performances on on any beatles song yeah. just the, he was sick his his voice was uh, frayed um you know even george martin was worried that he was going to damage his vocal cords and it was at the end of the evening right. you know and then he's like no i got it in me let's do this one last song and then the way it sounds so kind of coarse and rough and um, I just love it. I never yeah. get tired of that performance. It is so iconic to me. I agree. I, and and maybe the other one that kind of touches that to me is Mr. Moonlight at the beginning, the way that he just kind of like belts that out, just screams it. Mr. Moonlight. You know, you know it's just, just, it's awesome. With, with the cover tunes, because another noteworthy one is Money. Yeah. Uh, that's another cover tune. Money don't get everything it's too. What it don't get, I can use. Now give me more. And his performance doing that is similar um, to Twist and Shout and what you're mentioning. And um, he's just really able to embody that kind of testosterone rock yeah. persona. Um, that's infectious. And um, so that's, that's one side of his cultural contribution. And then I'm going to, I'm going to drop another, another one of my favorite vocal performances of his is Hey Bulldog. I just, I, I love, I, I don't know what it is about it, but there's just something about Hey Bulldog and his vocal performance in that. Hey Bulldog is a great performance. I was after that early feverish twist and shout and then the cultural um, contribution, I think, turned into singer-songwriting type of thing. You know, John and Paul, of course, and George. You know, this to me is why the Beatles are great, is songwriting. Um, they weren't the best musicians that have ever lived, but they could have been the best songwriters for this genre. And the thing that is so astounding to Lennon about Lennon is, you know, I've listened to the whole catalog infinite times over the last few years, and there aren't very many John Lennon songs that aren't terrific. It's, it's really amazing to me, the quality that he kept up as a songwriter and by doing that in so many different ways, you know, throughout this catalog with so many different changes, but he consistently wrote uh, really listenable, thought-provoking songs that were fun and engaging and infectious, you know, th throughout the whole thing. And so a lot of John's songwriting, you know, one, one example a little bit later, 65, like Nowhere Man, uh, or his other stuff on Rubber Soul. In my life, a good example. There are places I remember. Uh, Norwegian Wood. Another great example. He captured something in the writing. He captured a flavor. He he brought us to some kind of um, experience to share with him. 
uh, he let us in and and it was so well done. <laughs> he had some help. That's another thing about Lenin is when we talk about him, he got a lot of help, not only yeah. from the rest of the Beatles, particularly Paul, with not only writing, but, you know, performing and, and musical things and singing. You know, Paul helped him a lot, but George Martin helped him a tremendous amount. The way that his songs came out and were produced you know, Martin obviously gets a lot of credit. You know, I Am the Walrus would not have been that without George Martin. Yeah. Um, and many other songs. Strawberry Fields would not have been that without George Martin. But he, he really captured that, you know, the singer-songwriter. And then it changed. And, you know, in the transcendence phase, I think some of his biggest contributions that he ever did and shaped culture in that more progressive experimental even psychedelic direction you know with those big works like i just mentioned strawberry fields tomorrow never knows i'm the walrus you know um lucy in the sky with diamonds his other works on pepper um you get some of the most um amazing uh songwriting and and the astrology and the multi-layered quality of these songs is a whole other discussion that we're not going to open up Uh, that will be for later uh, which is pretty amazing but um but he also shifted culture in that direction he was you know one of the pioneers of that whole movement within rock music yeah you know the the first beatles album that i really fell in love with and i i was an early teen and um i i bought revolver because got to get you into my life was like the song that i loved and and as i listened to that cassette tape uh the, the first song that really started growing on me was She Said, She Said. She said, I know what it's like to be And I just listened to that over and over again. And it's a pretty simple song, but I just love it. I love it too. It's magical and it's underrated. And it's got also, as, as everything at that time, it has many dimensions going on in that song too. And it's a death song, clearly. Yeah. Now and to me, it's because it's also- of Peter Fonda, right? Isn't that isn't that the story? He was, the at, story, a, he was yeah. at a at, at a party, and Peter Fonda kept saying, "I know what it's like to be dead." And he's like, "Shut up, man! You're ruining my trip." Yeah, he, Fonda was showing off a bullet wound and and related near death experience, but that's what triggered um, the writing. But I think it also has a lot to do with his relationship with his dead mom. Mm. Um, and I even think that you can read the the song as even a dialogue uh, going back and forth along those lines. But we'll save that for, for another show. Um, <laughs> uh, what a tease you are. Yeah, I want to stay a little bit more general. Uh-huh. Um, but the magical songs uh, during that time um, that Lennon contributed uh, is another great example. Um, and then, uh, in the white album, I also think there's a big contribution here is, uh, although, you know, there was a lot of others doing it, you know, creating what I call hippie rock at this time, you know, the white album, you know, I affectionately kind of call the hippie album and, you know, it has a lot of variety on this album, but you could also look at a cluster of Lenin contributions on the white album that do sound similar, like, um, Dear Prudence and I'm So Tired. Dear Prudence, I'm so tired. I have 
you know, even uh, Bungalow Bill, you know. Just the strumming of the acoustic guitar, you know, singing stripped down music, you know, that has nature oriented themes, either inner nature or outer nature. Um, to me, that kind of goes along with the hippie movement and, you know, the soundtrack from Hair um, and other related, you know, types of things at that time. There's a lot of it in the late 60s, you know, a lot of this type of, of music being created. But Lennon and the visibility of the Beatles, I think he also can get some credit for that almost kind of subgenre of kind of almost acoustic hippie rock um, that the White Album features. Now, a, a lot of those songs he composed when he was in India, right? Yeah. What What was his experience like? Because I, I mean, I've I've seen him talk about it in different documentaries and the anthology and other things, and and I I know at first he was interested in Maharishi, but then kind of soured towards him. But I don't I don't really know exactly what happened there with that, or or, or how he felt about that experience as he moved. Well, he was authentically like George, you know, getting into contemplative study and meditation, and he took it seriously. Um, now, the issue with the Maharishi was around these alleged rumors of sexual uh, impropriety um, that were not really founded on any evidence. And, um, and so he became disillusioned by that. He also had some, some questions around the Maharishi's um, you know, motivations with embracing celebrities and, and financial things even. And a lot of that might've actually been some projection, I think. In fact, on the plane leaving India, he confided to Cynthia of his own sexual indiscretions. Um, and that was kind of the beginning of their marriage, you know, collapsing and they got divorced later on in 68. Um, but then again, the influence and in culture, again, you know, George obviously might be more the leader here, but still, John was quite involved, and and uh, spirituality and meditation and influence and culture. You know, the Beatles did that, and Lennon was a big part of that, despite his own triggers by the Maharishi and what happened there. Uh, that's a separate issue, but um, that's another way that Lennon influenced culture. And you can even go even further. You know, look at Abbey Road, and come together. Um, and, and just many other songs on that album, not just from Lennon, but, you know, the medley on side two, uh, which was very McCartney driven. Um, but I think Abbey Road really influenced a lot of rock and roll in the 70s. And so did um, things on Let It Be, you know, uh, Get Back became a radio staple. That's uh, that's a Paul song, but that also influenced um, a lot of uh, 70s rock and roll. And I think Abbey Road had a huge influence on 70s rock. And, and in fact, there's lots of covers. Aerosmith, they come together. So, so yeah, all in these, in these various ways. And then, of course, with the peace activism was huge cultural um, you know, influence with Give Peace a Chance and Imagine and all of the, um, his efforts towards peace activism had huge influence on... Uh, the collective consciousness with the Vietnam War and with, you know, peace issues and, and activism. Um, so in all of those ways, but the peace activism is a good segue into talking about some of the things in this chart. And, 
you know, part of the spirit of the book and part of the spirit of this podcast is to be, you know, neutral and, um, you know, not engaging in just glorification or hero worship, but just to be more scholarly about the realism of who these people are. And, um, you know, all of us are initially, you know, flawed and unfinished and works in progress. And that's true for everyone who's ever showed up on this planet, in my view. So Lenin is no exception. He, he wasn't, you know, in any sense, quote, some kind of God. He was very flawed and very human. And the, the major way that, you know, his chart, the, the maturation of his chart is basically from war to peace. He's got karma around conflict and violence and possibly war, which played out in his biography. He was born while the war was going on. He was a war baby. Um, then even with the, um, the acting roles, uh, if you watch in help, there's war symbology throughout help. Even a scene where, where John falls down in front of a tank and it, and it looks like he's going to get run over by a tank. <laughs> and then more famously, um, how we won the war and he played a soldier and there was the activation of his own karma during the recording uh, or the filming, I should say, of that movie and then the release. And my understanding of his chart is that he probably, like, uh, is very common. If you look at history, if you look at any century, look at any decade, there's pretty much been war all over the planet, you know, throughout history. So many people have war karma. This is not unusual. In fact, as we'll talk about at another time, perhaps, his connection with Stu Sutcliffe were fellow soldiers, in my view. And in fact, um, they got into a lot of brawls and, um, and to me, that was the reactivation of their war karma and, and Stu was, was beaten horrifically. And John actually got injured, um, protecting Stu and, and, and brawls. And you know what? He did also have a, a mean streak and he had his own issues with domestic violence and, you know, he is been very upfront in his own interviews and, and, you know, comments about his, um, his, his violence. Um, what, he was a what, fighter. what was that? The, the domestic violence, was that during the Beatles time period or was that later? No, it was earlier. He, he mellowed out and became a peace activist and he, that all shifted. It was more, um, he was after Julia died when he was 17 you know, he went through a dark period where he was aggressive. He was upset. He, he did not manage emotions. And, you know, he says his words, I was a hitter. And he, he picked fights with men. And according to his own language, he hit women. And so that was with girlfriends. And then, you know, and then with Cynthia to some degree, which she writes about in her own biography. Well, you know, you, you you mentioned earlier how there's there's very few John songs that aren't great songs. Um, run for your life is probably the most difficult song. You better run for your life if you can, little girl. Yeah, well, there you have yeah. it. That's that's exactly the song where he was revealing this. And you know, and people can look at that song. Oh, it's just a piece of art. It's it's fiction. 
but he, he he sings in that song you know i mean pretty menacing else. you better run for your life if you can little girl hide your head in the sand little girl catch you with another man that's the end little girl not only menacing but he says i mean everything i'm saying And he was um, giving catharsis. And this is really the, the work of the Beatles, is a transmutation of emotional issues into creative expression, into um, something that can be enjoyed by many. So turning a painful issue, grief and loss, but also in this example, something more belligerent, taking ownership for that and transmuting that into joy and, and good cheer and entertainment and stuff that we can sing along to and have fun to, that is the spiritual work of the Beatles. Um, is, was, is, was, that, was that in the personal uh, expression phase? Reconciliation. Or that was in the reconciliation? Of soul. That's when he's reconciling his own personality stuff. That's what that phase was about, and that's what he was doing on that song. And then it goes to another level on Sgt. Pepper, sung by Paul on Getting Better. It's getting better all the time. And yes, it's a Paul song and a Paul sung song. But um, John said in later interview, um, shortly before he died, um, he said, you know, I used to be cruel to my woman. I beat her and kept her apart from the things that she loved. Um, John said that was that was him. I used to be cruel to my woman. I beat her and kept her apart from the things that she loved. I was mean, but I'm changing my scene, and I'm doing the best that I can. The, to to me, it's a, it's an enormously beautiful process that happened at this time. Um, you know, Paul was assuming more leadership. And he wrote that song and sung it, but the whole group rallied around. And if you listen to that song, where the confession is being spoken or sung, George brings in the mystical tinge of the tambura at that moment. And the mood changes. And the way that I see that was confessional, was catharsis, was revealing a bit of their darkness in order to transmute it man i was mean but i'm changing my scene and i'm doing, I'm the, doing best the best that, that i can, I can. Yeah. But, but listen to this you gave me the word i finally heard word to me circles back to the song the word which yeah. is all about understanding love yeah And bringing it in through the sunshine of love, that this is what interconnects us. Yeah. Just like the sun does. Everything is connected in wholeness. Everything revolves around the sun. It holds everything into place. And the spiritual correlation is love. And that's the solar thread. And that's what they sing about. Yeah. And, you know, he, he learned the word, you know. Um, he was finally walking his talk. And then right after that song, in 1967, he deepens more with Yoko and they begin the next stage of 
of their peace activism work stems out of this. And so you can see the growth and his transformation into that gruff, cigarette-smoking, leather-jacket bad boy with the greased hair into wearing, you know, white, you know, kind of outfit with long hair, you know, with Yoko underneath the signs of bed piece, hair piece, yeah. or whatever it's Give said. Give peace a chance, is this what Give this guy's saying. That whole yeah. thing is the awakening into his Libran, peaceable, artistic um, contribution. And so the sun is a process of awakening and becoming. And we see right before our eyes, John becoming Libran, becoming a peaceable person. And then we all give the world the gift of our own becoming. So, um, so remi- remind me of his, of his moon sign and his sun sign, because if, if I understand right, you said that moon is kind of where you start off. Sun is kind of where you're going towards. And maybe that's too simple. The way in my approach to astrology, the moon is, is a window into um, who we've been, you know, what's been absorbed in the soul journey, um, our attachments, our identifications. And what I mean by identification is I'm this, I'm smart, I'm dumb, I'm lazy. Everybody seems to think I'm lazy. Lazy, I'm productive, whatever you identify as, whatever your disposition, your temperament um, the moon relates to the more egoic level, the biological level, in my view. And it's more more biological, more kind of, um, you know, just our relationship to um, just regulating the human system. Um, whereas the sun is, in my view, is the awakening into our soul self, the energy body. It's awakening into those intentions. It's a process of becoming like the acorn growing into the tree. And, and so, so in this case, I was saying that the acorn is the young, angry, rebellious, rebellious John Lennon, and the tree is the with a chip on his shoulder. Um, yeah. is the young Lennon, and his moon was also opposed Pluto, which is wounded around loss of mother and grief and family issues and pain, and he had a lot of unresolved intensity in his moon, and that needs to be resolved. And the way you resolve that according to his chart is putting creative expression into music like run for your life. And these other songs that are able to have a transmutation of the pain of the hurt into something that is more awake, something that is more peaceable, something entertaining, something that, you know, enlivens us in a new way. Um, the war stuff goes with what's called the South node of the moon. He's got an Aries and, um, he has it in the 12th house and that goes along with a lot of his leadership stuff. And the 12th house is the visionary area, but also another correlation of it is defeat. 12th house can go with defeat and loss and uh, Aries can go with conflict, including war. Um, and so being the disillusioned soldier who doesn't want to be fighting others, but is in that role anyway, and he's got his own emotion he's taking out, in the fighting is his karmic past. And then resolving that through love, through connection, um, through putting his efforts towards things that are more uplifting. That's, you know, his intention uh, to be an entertainer, uh, a performer, and, you know, having this ability to transmute culture, 
um, like I said earlier, and to uh, shift the collective consciousness even by bringing visionary things into entertainment and, uh, and talent. So he did his chart amazingly well. Uh, it's, it's really moving to me actually to see how much he actually grew in the Beatles run. I mean, if you look at him from the beginning, just pictures, and then at the end in 1969, you know, or 70 when it's made official, he's a different person. Yeah. Yeah. You you know, this is reminding me of um, a friend of mine, maybe a month or two ago, sent me this video that really offended me. (laughs) It was the comedian Bill Burr, um, who's, who's quite a caustic personality himself. And, and he took this clip of John and Yoko singing with Chuck Berry on some 70s show. And Bill Burr's like, now watch at this point, Yoko starts screeching or this. And, you know, like, why doesn't John just turn around and smack her? And, you know, like, hey, you need to put your woman in your place. Chuck Berry had that look on his face. Dude, I'm not even, jo- I'm not even exaggerating. She, yeah, yeah, that's what she did. And it's kind of like, John, that's your woman. Get her in line. And John Lennon does not, he doesn't even blink. He just, he just keeps playing, and then she does it again later on in that song. And then you look at all the other musicians, and they, they just keep playing the song like Yoko isn't even there. And uh, I actually get infuriated when I watch this video, the fact that John didn't just stop playing in that moment. And what he should have done was dressed her down right there. It's like, fine, you want to have a moment? This is your moment. If you ever do that again, I will slap you hard in the head. <laughs> Do you understand me? And like, it really affected me hearing this stuff and, and listening to what you're talking about with the way that, that John had his growth from like, if he was younger, maybe he would have done that. Yeah. But, but at this point in the seventies, he's mellowed and, and he loves this woman and he, he's encouraging her expression. He doesn't think that she's weird like everybody else. And in fact, I think he loves that everybody else thinks that she's weird in a way. But, oh yeah, no, he, he loved, you know, triggering things and getting people to think and doing things that were different. That's his Aquarius moon. Um, he's going to throw curveballs at us. That's just what he did over and over. And that's, you know, you asked me in the beginning, you know, why I love him. And that's why, you yeah. know, he's a trickster. He, he, he was a jokester. He, um, he said things just to get a rise out of people. Um, but he also had so much deep love. Um, he really did because he, he healed his own issues around it and he deepened. And in my view, what was happening is pretty out there and metaphysical. I believe that he had a reunion with his dead mother in his consciousness and he was collaborating with her. And that's when he began to mellow out is when, in my view, he had a more, um, loving experience with uh, his core issue. Well, you, you, cause you, you've talked about uh, Paul and his mother, Mary, and you know, he's very explicit in let it be mother. Mary comes to me. Has, does, has John been as explicit? Half of what I say is meaningless. Has he talked about times where he woke up and he heard music and it was Julia. But I say it just to reach you, Julia. I mean, I know he wrote the song, Julia. Well, Julia is the song that is the parallel to Let It Be. If you read the lyrics of Julia, he says specifically, Julia calls me. So I sing the song of love. 
and that's the call thread at the in the beginning he was calling out you know i call your name and all these other songs about you know wanting you know connection and reunion and then he uses that language um in the middle period and the later about being called he says that in lucy in the sky with diamonds that he's being called somebody calls you you he says that in Across the Universe that he's being called Images of broken light which dance before me like a million eyes they call me across the universe He says it in Julia that he's being called and then he depicts Julia as a shimmering glimmering presence in the sky Her floating sky is shimmering glimmering Um, her hair a floating sky is shimmering and he he depicts almost this uh image of her um with the sun it's a solar song and here she is with the sun explicitly in the lyrics now paul gets a little bit more kind of um clear perhaps a little bit more um just evident that he's connecting with his mother Mary uh, in dream time. But to me, Julia is John's parallel. And that's the thing. They paralleled each other every step of the way in so many ways. It's incredible how much they paralleled each other. And Let It Be and Julia are the songs that specifically mention their mothers. Now, Julia Lennon and Mary McCartney are the only two real biographical people that are mentioned in all of Beatles songs. Um, hey Jude was about Julian Lennon, but Julian, his name is not mentioned. It's, it's, you know, uh, I don't know. I think tax man has some, like some, some, but those aren't people, people in their personal life. They oh, mentioned, okay. You know, politicians, uh, Wilson and Heath, but yeah. th- those aren't people close to them. The only people close to them that are mentioned in Beatles lyrics are Mary McCartney and Julia Lennon. And, uh, you know, to me, that is, um, you know, part of the muse process, as I call it, uh, conclusion is when the muse relationships are stated overtly is those two songs, Julia Calls Me, um, which is another beautiful song. And we can comment there about that song. There's another thing about that song that's noteworthy is that's the only song that John plays solo on in the whole Beatles catalog is Julia. It's just him and his guitar. Um, Paul did that quite a bit. Um, John didn't really do that too much, but he did. And this might be a good segue to comment on John's musicianship um, to change gears. Um, I think personally that John was a phenomenal rhythm guitarist and he, he played that role exquisitely um, and he held it down. I mean, rhythm guitar really holds down a lot of the music and it allowed you know, George to be the lead guitarist and to go on his, you know, solos and excursions and, and what he did. But, you know, Lennon provided that and he was very capable. And to me, the fact that they didn't hit it right away was perfect. And the fact that they needed to play, you know, a grueling schedule in Hamburg was perfect because initially John had more exuberance than skill you know he didn't know the chords too well and you know julia taught him with some banjo chords and and he was just kind of winging it 
But then when they got to Hamburg, <laughs> they had to play so much that John, just by practice and repetition, became a good guitarist, you know, in the early 60s. And by the time the Beatles came out in 63 for the first album, and then more broadly, 64, he was a very able guitarist. Um, but he wasn't as innately skilled as much as Paul was or George was, in my view. Their skill level as musicians, I think, was, was probably higher. Um, John did do some soloing at the end. You know, he did um, Get Back. He does um, uh, the solo there. And um, he does some, some really fine guitar work in, in a number of songs. Um, but it was more supporting. Um, he wasn't, you know, showy. Um, Did he know, also play piano? He played, you know, harmonica. He played piano. Yeah. He played keyboards. He played Mellotron. He even played bass on a few songs. On Rocky yeah. Raccoon, he played bass. You oh. know, he was a very able mu musician. But my sense about it is that the guitar and music in general for Lennon was for broader cultural reasons. It was to, to, uh, to accompany his message. You know, Give Peace a Chance is a great example. You know, that's the message. It's not about him playing guitar, you know. It's just acoustic riffing, you know. It's not that complicated, but it gets the job done. It's, it's more or less, he saw it as a vehicle for, for his, his message, you know, because he was focused on the transformation of culture. That's what he wanted to do. He wanted to have an influence. He didn't want to become Eric Clapton. In fact, you know, he gladly had Eric Clapton join him as the Plastic Ono band. You be Eric Clapton. You got the skill. That's not who I am. You know, I don't need to pretend that I'm Eric Clapton. <laughs> you know, he was fine being a, you know, rhythm guitarist. I even saw an interview him recently. Um, well, it wasn't recent, but I ran into it recently. Right. where He said, you know, after the Beatles broke up, there was a lot of focus on jamming, you know, and people getting together to jam. And he's like, that always made me a little bit uncomfortable. He's like, when I would get together with these other musicians, he's like, I'm not Eric Clapton. I don't have all of, of that. You know, I can come and strum along. He goes, but he said it wasn't really his thing. You know, his focus was not on being, you know, the best guitarist in the world. He saw the guitar as a vehicle for his contribution. Um, but he was talented. He, he, had, he had a gift with it. And, you know, he was more than adequate. Uh, I think he, he was, in some ways, exceptional as a rhythm guitarist. I think one of the best examples was uh, All My Loving in the early catalog. He plays this, you know, um, this rhythm part that really moves the song. I mean, it's, it carries the song. It gives it so much, you know, quality and, and character um, is one example. Uh, and there's many others too. Uh, so he, he, was, he was a very, very good guitarist. It just wasn't his primary you know, focus. I think of him as a songwriter, and I think of him as a singer. Now, how we evaluate a vocalist is, of course, subjective, and not everyone is going to agree. And I don't care for rankings about who's the best vocalist or what have you. Um, but I can only speak from my own personal um, opinion, I suppose. And I will say that I think John is a phenomenal singer. 
I love the quality of his voice. Me too. I love, I love the way that it changes and there's different versions. I mean, some of it was different studio effects. Like his voice was slightly altered for Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds. Just like when I'm 64 for Paul, you know, it's slightly uh, altered uh, for an effect. So yes, there is some of that. But um, I think he was a brilliant singer. And some, some examples, uh, Baby You're a Rich Man is a great vocal uh, song that he sang. I think that I Am the Walrus is a very well sung song because it's different, it's unique. Um, his style is um, so much more almost snarling and edgy and a different John um, than you hear on other songs. I just love it. And it's almost like impossible not to sing along with that song. It's so infectious. I mean, he really carries you along as a singer and just the quality, you know, like, um, you know, even with some of the more simpler songs like um, On Hard Day's Night, I'll Be Back. You know, if you break my heart, I'll go. Just more sweet and romantic, and you know, it's engaging, it just sounds good. But I'll be back again. I, I think, I think my favorite thing about John Lennon, and I referenced it a little bit earlier, but it's just his humor, you know. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I just love his humor. And have you listened to the um, the Christmas recordings that they did? They're just these little like four or five minute things each year. And you can you can listen to them and hear it, but but there's the ones that they had. I think in '66, '67 were so bizarre. They were like two years in a row that they're just my favorite of those Christmas messages. And he does this poem, Podgy the Bear and Jasper were huddled around the unlit fire in the center of the room. There are no more matches left, Podgy," said Jasper. "Then buy some, Jasper, old friend," said Podgy. "Make a list." And afterwards, we'll go to the shop and buy matches and candles and buns. There's no more paper to write on, Podgy. No need to worry, Jasper. You keep saying to yourself matches, and I'll keep saying candles until we reach the shop. Then we won't need to write it down. We'll remember. We'll remember the buns, Podgy. We both will, Jasper. Candles. Things like that. I just listen. There, there's an interview that he did with Kenny Everett that is my absolute favorite John Lennon contribution ever. And he's, it's just capturing him in the studio, just playfully engaging with this, you know, Kenny Everett, who I, I guess was a well known interviewer at, at the time. Well, that's what I recall on dear Kenny Everett or MBE. So that's what India taught you. Exactly. <laughs> Did you come back with anything incredibly fantastic? Yes. Or was it just a little a bit? A beard. <laughs> yeah. I met Donovan the other day. 
on a shawl, and uh, he oh, looked right. a little better for it. Yes, it was very healthy, though. I got a, uh, a photograph of you in the Daily Mirror, standing in a sheet, you look very peaceful. That's called a banoose, Kenny, and I got it from Morocco. Really? <laughs> standing in a sheet, what do you mean? It looked like a, a sheet. Well, they do, banooses look very, very like sheets. Mm. See, so as the lower classes in Morocco don't feel too put out. Yeah. Having only the sheets to wear. It's that personality part of him. Oh, he was hilarious. Humor and humor. Uh, because the thing about Lennon is that he was so intelligent. Yeah. And, and when you have his level of um, free-spiritedness and... Um, you know, and you combine that with with being really smart. You know, he he had a lot of clever zingers that he brought out. I also will say that some of what he did wouldn't fly in present day. I mean, he um, you know he had a lot of colorful <laughs> humor, yeah. um, things that aren't necessarily politically correct. He composed it himself in a fit of lethargy. And so he was. He was outrageous. He was larger than life. He was iconic. And it, it ranged from, you know, really sublime art that had all these other dimensions to it that the book gets into, to just simple humanness of relaying, you know, the experience like in Norwegian wood, you know, the quality that comes out there and the humanness of, of a lot of his writing. And then these other ways, like we talked about influencing culture with twist and shout or these other things we mentioned, he had so many sides to him. He was so complicated and, um, and his contribution was so enormous. Um, that you know he's he's just a, a really titanic figure uh, i think in 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 20th century and also the fact that he was assassinated you know um you know and being this nonviolent activist and he ends up getting shot you know and and representing peace you know despite the way people are in the world is you know um He's just, he's just had an amazing life. So, so let's, let's imagine, <laughs> imagine <laughs> for a minute that, that he hadn't been assassinated and that he was here that it, now getting ready to turn 80 years old and he's living through COVID and he's living through Trump and Biden debate <laughs> last week. And, and, you know, what, what do you think? he would be doing what would his contribution be to I think the world he'd, he'd now? be a social commentator i think he'd have something intelligent and colorful and provocative to say about anything i mean he probably would have a field day with the current political landscape out there he'd probably have a lot to say about that but you know and he was this way you know during the beatles and afterwards you know he had a lot of really clever poignant things to say uh, about life, about politics, about spirituality, about culture, about being human. I mean, that's the thing. Do you think he would be encouraging people to come together, to put their differences aside, to give peace a chance and, you know, like not, not take shots at one side in the cultural war or another side in the cultural war, but really say, you guys, come on. That's hard for me. All you need is love, man. Yeah. You know, it's hard for me to answer. I mean, you know, the 60s are over and I don't think he would have necessarily be trumpeting the same song for 40 years. 
um, things probably would have shifted and changed as they did in his life. Um, but I think the spirit of his message probably would have maintained. Um, and that really is give peace a chance. That really is that it is about love. And that's what he was learning. He was learning about peace and love because he had violence and disconnection from love. And so he was teaching what he was learning. And I think that would have only strengthened. It would have only got more mature. Um, but it probably would have changed in different ways that we can't expect. He was an individualistic person. He was unique and, and he, I, I had no idea what he would have turned into, but it probably would have been surprising to us. You know, there's a guy who reinvented himself several times and I'm sure that would have continued. I think that the, the last thing I'm really interested about is the time when he became a house husband, you know, in, and called himself a house husband yeah. because you, you know, when you talk about that journey of where he started in life with his dad taking off his mom, basically taking off him, you know, not having a stable family home. Um, and, and he had the, the rough up and downs throughout his life, but, but towards the end, it seems like he recreated himself once again and found this real stability with with home with family yes. and that wraps it up so well for the issues of his chart because he's got estrangement abandonment issue loss disconnection and he did that himself when his first son julian was born yeah you know he wasn't that i mean granted it was Beatlemania and all that but you know he still he didn't have to take off to go to spain for a few days right after his son was born i mean he could have shown up a bit more and and he did have you know, his own process and remorse around being pretty absentee. And it, it was just a reflection of his own pattern of estrangement. And he recognized that and he committed to Yoko after the lost weekend where he was kind of being fancy free for a while around 73-ish. And then he committed and they had their son, Sean, in 75. And he became this incredibly loving, invested, you know, husband and father and he saw the beauty of it and you know from my little window into it when i see stuff in the imagine one well, not necessarily in that movie i think that was earlier but um in other lenin related things when you see the footage of him yeah you know with with sean you right. know it was beautiful and, and like the beautiful boy yes that kind of stuff yeah. And, yeah. and his solar career i mean you know here's someone in his mid-30s in 1975, when Sean was born, um, who was incredibly famous and had a lot of influence, you know, he could have, you know, got all of the top names in the music industry to work with him and create, you know, solo music. And he, he could have really um, cranked it up if he wanted to and, and create a more significant solo body of work. But he felt that his priority, and rightfully so with his spiritual work, really wasn't about that at that time. It was really about healing and love and deepening and family. And he made that the priority, the priority and, you know, beautifully so. And it just is another piece of evidence of his incredible maturation. Um, he grew up and he challenged us to grow up in, in many ways as well. And, um, and so thank you, John. Thank you, John. Thank you, John. Thank you, John. Talking about the spiritual dimension.
Thank you for listening to the Spiritual Dimension of the Beatles podcast with Eric Myers and me, Glenn Ostland. If you like what you just heard, please give us a five-star rating and write a nice review for us on iTunes. You can also like our Facebook page and subscribe to our YouTube channel. Look for Eric's book, The Spiritual Dimension of the Beatles, coming sometime in early 2021. And while you're waiting, why not go check out my book, Bathing with God, which is available on Amazon.com. Or you could go listen to my other really great podcast, also called Bathing with God. And hey, if you've got a question that you'd like us to discuss on the podcast, find us at our Facebook page or simply email us at spiritualbeetles at gmail.com. That's spiritualbeetles at gmail.com. Thanks again for listening, because in the end, the love you take is equal, you know the rest. Oh.